No Kansas legislative session would be without debate about the academics, leadership, and financing of Kansas public education. This session is, of course, no exception. The conversations are made more compelling by the COVID-19 pandemic, which has interrupted in-class teaching. Much to the dismay of lawmakers who question the wisdom of teaching the state's 400,000 or so public school students through online alternatives. Here to dive into the nuts and bolts of the legislative intrigue are Mark Gassetti of the Kansas National Education Association and Mark Tallman of the Kansas Association of School Boards. Both have spent many years in the hallways and committee rooms of the Kansas Capitol. Welcome to the Kansas Reflector Podcast. Perhaps we can preface a discussion about the bills moving to the 21 legislature with your take on how schools have dealt with COVID-19. Uh, we're about a year into the pandemic, and the schools, of course, haven't settled back to normal. Mr. Tallman, can you can you just help us a little bit with the landscape? Like, uh, how 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 is instruction being handled generally? Well, the the one of the big issues to understand is that there really isn't a general to answer to that. After last spring, when all schools were, were really closed till the end of May, we have had districts that started full-time, in-person, exactly as they would have, and we have districts that have not yet brought kids back over this whole period of time. We have districts that have some kids still operating remote and and students that are back in-person. We've had districts that started in-person and have had to stop because of of community circumstances or have had to stop because of literally not having enough staff to participate because of quarantine. So, It's important to understand there is no single answer around the state. Most kids have been back to school at least to some extent for in-person learning all during this time. But there are some big and visible exceptions, and I think that's what's driving a lot of legislative concern. And Mark DeSetti of KNEA, what's your sense of the state's capacity to educate these kids during a pandemic? Well, I think capacity's the key issue. You know, when, when the, when the buildings were closed, and I want to, I want to point out that schools did not close, the buildings closed. Correct. Continued to work last spring. Um, I, you know, we've never really prepared for a situation where we go completely remote learning. Number one, we don't have, uh, uh, students with devices be online. We don't have adequate internet access across the state. Uh, we don't have the capacity to do that. We don't have teachers, by and large, that were trained in utilizing that technology for remote learning. So we really had, uh, what, I think two weeks uh, to get up to speed. Well, of course we didn't get up to speed. We did the best we could, but um, it was it was like I heard someone comparing it to being in Apollo 13 about Sometimes you just need some duct tape and see what you can do. <laughs> the best. Where I grew up, it's fixing everything with bailing wire. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's a, there were a lot of people in that situation, and it's it's not that they weren't working hard or trying hard. It's just we didn't have the uh, the devices, we didn't have the the training, we didn't have uh, the internet capacity throughout the state to handle uh, what happens. I think over the summer. There were valiant efforts to get some training going to, to make things happen, and I think we launched in a much better position in the fall. Um, but still, for those places that needed to, to stay remote or go hybrid, uh, it, it's difficult to do. I, I think of myself, I had four kids. I can't imagine how I would have managed four children on devices, remote learning, because we had one family computer. 
Um, so I, I think schools have done a, rem- a remarkable job given the challenges they had to overcome and the fact that there was, in the beginning, about two weeks, it was spring break and another week to come up to speed. Um, uh, the, the other side of this is the issue of the, the great fear that many people had in returning to school in the fall. You, you understand we, we still didn't know fully how the, how the virus affected children. We now know uh, that it has a much smaller, uh, much less of an effect on young people. But we do know young people can get it, and we do know young people can spread it to older people. And then we had a lot of older teachers terrified, a lot of older paraprofessionals or, or other employees worried about themselves and their families and carrying it back. Um, we like to think that this was just no big deal. Well, kids don't get it, so let's all go in there. Adults do get it, and we're right to be fearful um, and, and worried. Yeah, and I and I concur. Kids are just. You know, I volunteered in a public school for 20 years, and the place is just a massive vector of infection, and uh, that's that's part of the part of the context that that schools have. Mr. Tallman, you are no doubt aware that there's some legislators who want students return to in-person classes right now. Uh, from the perspective of the Kent Association of School Boards, is that a good idea? Well, last uh, last uh, year during the special session, the legislature decided that it wanted to address the, the pandemic as a matter of local control and local variation and let decisions be made by, by local county officials. We still tend to think that's generally the right idea. There, There is more and more uh, recommendations and data that say kids should be back in school in person. I want to stress that back to a physical building to be together. But every every one of those recommendations says only if you can do certain mitigating steps. And not all districts have been able to do that yet, I think, is the problem. One one district, as we understand it, is still out because that is a, a, a condition of their local county commission, which they are allowed to do under state law. And so all of these choices, it, so is it a good idea? It is absolutely the right goal. We need to get kids back in the best learning environment for them and for most kids, that is being in an in-person environment. But I don't – the issue is, is that more important than any other factor? And that's what I think our districts are still struggling with. I have said we will be able to have some measure of the academic and other consequences of, of not having in-person learning. We will never be able to know how many lives might have been saved because of the decisions that we've made. And the research and reports that talk about we have not had a lot of spread in our schools. We have not had a lot of, of, uh, of deaths of any age. But remember, that good record has happened because of the choices that have been made on how we're going to operate. The fact that we haven't had these problems doesn't mean that we wouldn't have if we'd have made different decisions. So everyone agrees with the urgency of trying to get uh, restore things as soon as we can. But 
I don't think that means that you abandon every other health and safety concern. Uh, there is a bill that's going to have a hearing next week that would basically try to require that everyone come back by a date certain. But that bill does not make any future exceptions for things like there could be another pandemic. There could be outbreaks of flu. There could be natural disasters. There's all kinds of reasons why districts over time have not had in-person learning. Um, and that's while, again, there's the deep frustration it has been so long under this, we're likely to have those issues in the future again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim, Mr. Yes, sir. Mr. Desetti, go ahead. I think Mark's points are all very well taken. I, I want to point out that uh, 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 parents obviously want their kids back in person in school uh, so they can go back to work in their lives. But I'm going to tell you, nobody wants them back more than their teachers. That's what they were trained to do, in-person learning with their students, and they love their students and want to be with them. But they want to be with them. They want to, to, they want to be assured that it is safe to be in the school in a, in a, a, a large group like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so our position has always been we want, we want to return to school when it is safe to return to school. When we can, when we can assure our our teachers, our support staff, the parents uh, that uh, coming back to school, coming back in those buildings, is not going to spread this virus. Even if that spread is just to the adults, if it doesn't spread among children, that's one thing. But it children could go home and spread it to their families. That's correct. And and so we don't want to be part of spreading this. We want. To return to our classrooms with all of our kids. We want to do that as fast as possible, but we want to make sure that it is safe to do so. And Mark talked about mitigation factors and masking and, and the things we have to do to make that happen. Um, that, that's the main thing. And, and, and to the bill that Mark was talking about, you know, we have a bill that says by this date, everyone's going to be back in in person. Well, at the special session, I think they passed a, a, a changes to the Emergency Management Act because they wanted, as Mark pointed out, they said, we can't have these decisions being made by the governor up here. We want them made at the local level. Well, apparently the local level didn't agree with what they thought they wanted, so now we're going to push it back to the state level. Let's, let's let local communities, we have elected officials close to the people, they know what's happening in their communities, they're working with their health departments, make decisions that are good for kids, that are good for the families, that are good for the school staff, and let science be our guide. Okay. Mr. Tallman, I I should have done this at the outset. If you would be so kind as to just explain briefly what the Kansas Association of School Boards is and what kind of constituency you represent in the Capitol. And then, Mr. Gassetti, you could do the same. Our our members, as as the name implies, are the individual local school boards not board members. Our services are to local boards and, and supporting them in their, uh, in their work as the, as the governance and, and uh, management of public schools, as well as certain other local institutions like special education cooperatives and service centers and those things. So uh, our, our core constituents are the boards that are elected by those uh, uh, 286 school districts across the state. Okay. Mr. Desetti, KNEA? Yeah, Tim, we are the, the state's largest professional association for educators. We uh, 
uh, represent uh, teachers. Um, some school administrators are members, a lot of uh, support staff, custodians, secretaries, paraprofessionals. The bulk of our members are classroom teachers, uh, 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 more than 25,000 educators in the state who, who belong to our association. Okay. <clears throat> All right, good. Let's talk legislation. So the Kansas Senate has passed a massive, massive uh, tax bill, and the legislation by one estimate, would reduce the uh, revenue available to the state by a billion dollars over three years. I wondered if both of you could just speak to what kind of impact that that reduction in revenue might have on K-12 public education. Mr. Tallman, you want to go first? Well, for about the last 25 years, K-12 education has been about 25% of the state general fund budget. So if you are reducing revenues coming in, it's either going to have an impact on K-12 funding or it's going to have an even greater impact on everything else in the budget, social services, higher education, and those other areas. So our, our concern is that um, after after the tax cuts that were passed well, going on now, well, I guess approaching a decade ago, we saw Kansas education funding fall below inflation, fall behind all states in the country, fall behind our peers, and the consequence was uh, cutting positions, cutting programs, and I think people did not like that. And so the legislature then had to kind of come back and partially, largely restore that round of cuts to preserve key state services. And our concern is that the same thing may happen, um, that, that we'll be in a position where, once again, will having to be reducing what we can provide to operate schools and all the other important parts of state government. So we, we understand that the legislature always looks at tax policy and there are some things that people want to do. But what seemed to have been a, a fairly large tax bill when it came out of committee has now gotten much larger uh, as it went through the Senate and will be going to the House committee uh, probably sometime in the next few weeks. Yeah, it's a gigantic tax Christmas tree. Mr. DeSetti, uh, Mark DeSetti, if you could, uh, you know, Mr. Tallman mentioned this, uh, you go back to the era of Governor Sam Brownback and massive income taxes were cut, uh, major, major legislation, very controversial. Uh, you know, it seemed like the idea of the GOP was to say, hey, sorry, Kansas, we had to lower taxes, and now there's not enough left for schools, so sorry. Uh, but the Kansas Supreme Court threw a red flag on that. Is is there any prospect of of that kind of scenario playing out again? Well, Tim, uh, to use a sports analogy, we have deja vu all over again, right? So uh, we know what here's the deal. We know what happened in, in 2012, 2013, coming out of a recession. There's this idea, oh, we're going to cut taxes, it's going to trickle down, it's going to do great things. And what it did was collapse the state almost to the point of, of, of insolvency. Um, it forced the legislature to cut schools, to freeze funding, uh, to, to basically cut the highway plan, to knock people off uh, services, uh, disability services, and so on. It was a disaster, and I think Senator Longbein even referred to that in his comments on the floor during the debate on this bill. Um, we're, we're at the, we are in the process of funding our schools to a constitutionally 
adequate and equitable level under the Gannon decision. We're phasing that in, as we were doing with Montoy back then, and uh, or, or back earlier than that. When we, when we renege on that promise, we know what happens. We go back to court. And in this case, the court has retained jurisdiction over the case after the, uh, after the abandonment of the Montoy uh, phase-in program, and they're not going to let it go. Um, so I, I think the last thing we want to do is end up back in court. But w- what is frustrating to me more than anything is that uh, when we are in good time, when the economy is booming, we're going to cut taxes and give that money back to the people because, you know, everything's great. And when we're in bad times, we're going to cut taxes and see if it can spur the economy. That seems to me sometimes all we ever do is, is find ways to cut taxes. And um, what we need to do is establish a sound financial footprint for the state. And, and this seesawing back and forth on these kinds of things is not helpful. We're going to find ourselves, uh, we just passed the new highway plan, we're going to gut it. We're going to, uh, are we going to renege on our schools? Are we going to go back to, you know, we're trying to, to deal with foster services and so on. Uh, we really have to, to uh, do better. Um, and and this, this tax bill is just a major step backwards uh, in terms of, of taking care of those services that are vital to meet the needs, not just of education, but all Kansans and all walks of life. Mr. Tallman, let's skip to another tax piece of tax legislation. There's there's an exists right now in state statute, a, we'll call it a scholarship for low-income students from low-performing schools uh, to help them go to a private school, an alternative form of education. There's a bill percolating in the state house that would perhaps expand eligibility to 200,000 students. That's about half of the uh, population of public schools. Mr. Tallman, what do you, what do we think about that? Well, a, a lot of concerns about that bill on, on a couple of grounds. Um, the, 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 the largest concern I think that most public education folks have looking at this is the concern that you are moving down the road of greater public support for a private school system that doesn't have to meet the needs of all kids. Um, the, the nature of private education is you can be selective in who you choose. You can specialize what you want to do. You can choose your own your own mission, where public schools have to serve absolutely everyone. And this program originated to be targeted at free lunch only kids and only kids participating in the 100 elementary schools with kind of the lowest test scores, which, by the way, are schools that have the highest percentage of high poverty and high needs kids. Not necessarily these schools are, quote, failing. They've got the kids with the biggest challenges. That program was quite limited. The the version of bills which have passed the Senate and passed out of one House committee raised the income level to free and reduced, which which applies to about 45 percent of all kids in public education and takes away any any limits on the schools kids come from. So it would apply to any public school. A, A child could be there. And there's no. There's no qualifications of academic or other need on the part of the student other than being eligible for free and reduced lunch. And our concern really is that this this opens the door to 
more kids using these uh, using these scholarships uh, to go to a different system, but there's no guarantee that it will be a, a random selection of public school students that may have different needs. Our fear is more likely to be kids with fewer needs leaving public schools to continue to have our highest need students. Mm-hmm. And that's our big concern about the, these bills moving forward. Let's talk about a separate bill, Mr. Desetti. This one is, uh, I think, perhaps going to have a House committee hearing soon, and it would limit participation in Kansas school sports programs to uh, girls who are declared such at birth, basically no transgender participants in women's sports. Is there is Are there very many transgender athletes in Kansas? Do, do we have any sense of this? Uh, well, actually, we, we understand that there are five uh, at the current time, and I don't know whether those are transgendered boys or transgender girls, but I understand hmm. there are five around the state. This is this bill is just you know, I guess the problem I have is 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 well, first of all, it's, it's discrimination, but secondly, um, societies change, times change, people change, attitudes change. And uh, as much as, as those of us uh, who went to high school perhaps in the early 70s, like myself, uh, wish it was still those days, it's not those days. And, uh, you know, we look at, at, at sports, you know, before Title IX, everybody thought, well, women don't need to compete in sports anyway. So we had to have Title IX to give them sports to compete in. Um, I would take to um, we are we have moved to a point where this year we had the first female football player for a, a power five uh, college. Women can compete with men. Kent State University had a young woman in the uh, 2012 to 2015 redshirted played with the, their football team, Division NCAA Division One. We go back to Liz Heaston, who played for Willamette in, uh, back in the late 90s. Women are competing with men. Women are doing fine. This is not an – this still treats women as if they're some sort of weaker sex. And, um, you know, things change over time. Once, once upon a time we had segregated schools. No one wants segregated schools now. Once upon a time, interracial marriage was illegal. Now it's celebrated. Uh, once upon a time, we imprisoned and institutionalized homosexuals, and now there are rainbow flags everywhere you go. Society changes. Young people have different attitudes, and, and sometimes we need to adjust to some of those attitudes um, for those of us who did not grow up in this kind of world. And, and I don't think there's anybody, I don't think there's anybody who is – deciding, well, I'm going to be, some, some teenage boy is not saying, well, I'm going to be transgender because then I can get a volleyball scholarship to college. That's not happening. It's also interesting to me that if you'll remember the Caitlyn Jenner uh, uh, issue, when, when Bruce Jenner became Caitlyn Jenner, there was outrage and a, this, this woman needs to be stripped of Olympic medals that she won as a male as if, uh, wait a minute, but that would be because she was a woman competing with men then, apparently. Uh, the complete opposite of this bill. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we just need we, we need to understand that, that society changes. We, we learn new things. We, we have to adapt. 
and we have to follow the lead of, of I think, younger generations for whom this is far less of an issue than it is for older generations. And, you know, I'm old, so... (laughs) Perhaps, I think we'll just have to see where that legislation goes. That's going to be interesting. And in the last minute or so here, I wondered if you guys have any thoughts about uh, mandatory civics tests or financial literacy classes. What what, What do you all think about diving into the curriculum like that from the State House? I think, first of all, we're both going to say that's the responsibility of the State Board of Education. They are given general supervision of the schools uh, for the purposes, uh, particularly of curriculum and assessment and so on. I, I want to address uh, specifically uh, the issue of the financial literacy. The, the require, this, is not, this bill does a little less than it's done in the past in that it doesn't require a course, but it does put some other requirements on the Board of Regents and on the uh, school boards. Uh, But, you know, we have a situation in this country where there is a serious problem with with financial debt, with debt and other things. But this is not because we haven't had financial literacy classes. This is because uh, we have we have not funded post-secondary education and we have saddled a generation with massive debt that they can't get out of. We have a, a payday lender and a title lender on every corner uh, preying on people making minimum wage or, or in low-wage jobs with, with uh, rates of 100, 200, 300% interest rates on loans. We have predatory credit card companies that are sending you, how many do you get a day? And, you know, I think, here's the deal, the, the legislature Lawmakers will not regulate those industries. They won't regulate predatory practices by by lenders and credit companies. And instead they say, well, you know, here's a problem that our schools need to solve. Our schools need to teach kids not to take advantage of the businesses that we won't regulate because we know they're bad. I mean – this has to be a two-pronged thing. Yeah, we can do financial literacy, and that's a good idea. But it's not going to solve the problem if if there's a, a payday lender on every corner, if there's predatory credit card practices, and if we don't get the cost of post-secondary education under control and do something about living wages. That's how we take care of, uh, uh, of this massive debt problem. I think we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank both of you gentlemen, Mark Desetti of the Kansas National Education Association and Mark Tallman of the Kansas Association of School Boards, very thoughtful people in the state house, relied upon by many uh, for advice on, on how to handle many of these issues. I want to thank you both for being on the podcast. Thank you.